Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We are engaged in a series uh, called Platforms to Pillars, and we're looking at the way in which our society has been structured, built around a particular way where we're encouraged to platform ourselves, put our wants, desires, needs before everything else. And contrasting that with the way in which the scriptures invite us to live, which is to live as a pillar. God is building a living temple in the world and he encourages us to be pillars. Pillars work with other pillars. They bear a load. They create a space in which the Holy Spirit can dwell. And we're going to continue uh, walking on this journey through following the story of the people of God leaving Egypt, moving uh, through the wilderness to become the people that God had called them to be, escaping exploitation and oppression in Egypt. And where we're up to is we're up to Exodus 17. We're going to begin at verse 8. What has just happened is the people, and we looked at this last week, have gone through the parting of the sea. There was a number of plagues which had occurred And this was a spiritual battle between God and the Egyptian Pharaoh who saw himself as a God. And finally, there's this last plague, the plague of um, uh, the firstborn passing, this Passover where the firstborn of Egypt are killed and the Israelites meet and have this Passover meal and then they leave. They find themselves on the sort of edge of Egyptian uh, society at the edge of where the sort of borders of Egypt are and they're confronted by this sea and this is an incredible miracle as the split sea is split as Moses raised his staff in his arms and the people walk through. So we're going to pick up just after that. Exodus 17 verses 8 to 15. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now remember, if you've been for a few weeks, the staff is a character in this story. It's not a a living creature, but it actually plays this really interesting role. Verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. I clearly remember the first and only time I ever have been electrocuted. I was 12 and we were visiting family friends and they had a gaming console. And I was playing on this console and some of you are going, what sort of console was it? Was it a PlayStation? Uh, was it a you know, Nintendo? 
What did you just say? Seek a master system. Atari. It was an Atari. Turn to the person next to you and say, how old is this guy? Um, and it was an Atari. And I'd been playing with it. And there's obviously there's other kids there. And I don't remember how I'd been separated from the other kids, but I had, probably because like, I wanted to play this game in contact. We didn't have one at home. And I could hear my parents in the other room like, boys, we're leaving now. And so I don't know if I'd taken it out to play with it, but I remember like reaching behind, there's that little power cord that goes into the socket in the wall and you switch it off and you're meant to like switch it off and you're told this and you're like, yeah, I'll do that the first few times. And then you just get brazen as 12 year old boys do, uh, which doesn't disappear until 42. <laughs> and uh, I reached and grabbed it, didn't flick off the switch. And my fingers went behind the sort of unit and my fingers touched what was the power socket, uh, the um, sort of the bit back of the power socket uh, cord. And yeah, I began to then feel this tremendous pain and I could feel the power going up my hand. I remember this really weird bit where I'm like, it's traveling up my hand, this is terrible. And I'm telling, my brain's telling my hand to let go, but I couldn't. And I remember sort of like in this moment, it must have only been a second, but I remember it sort of getting up to about here and then finally like sort of through this wheel telling myself to let go and I let go. I was sweating. I didn't tell my parents I'd just been electrocuted because I thought I'd get in trouble or something. I felt guilty about this. I remember like I got in the car and I must have been quiet because I just was sitting there just like, just been electrocuted and lived, you know, because I thought that if you're electrocuted, you're going to be dead. Like, so like, I was like, I just had this near death experience. And humans are poor, electrically conductive material. <laughs> and it goes really slow. Like it goes through our body so slow that I could actually feel it and almost cognitively understand that it was going through my arm. And for power to move through something fast, it needs like highly conductive material. And so that's why power cords, if you open them up, you'll see that often made of copper or aluminium. And this basically allows the sort of electrons to move really quickly through certain things. And this is also why, you know, people wear rubber shoes who work in, in different fields with electricals because that's like bad conductive material. And really what this story is about, that we're about to read, is about how does power move, not through aluminium or copper, but how does power, God's power, move through situations and circumstances, through contexts, through countries, through cities, and actually moves through a conductive material, the human being. And it moves differently through the human being than electric currents move through the human being. Now, conductivity is stopped when there's a kind of break in the chain. That's what's often called an open circuit. A closed circuit is when the electricity can go around the pathway that it has. But when you've got an open circuit condition, that means the actual electricity is not able to travel because there's a break. Now, what I'm going to argue today is that God moves his power through people. Does this mean that if one person has the Holy Spirit and we create a human chain of people holding the hand, that it's necessarily going to move through that? No. But what I am saying is, in contrast to the platform society that is in the world, 
that actually God is building a group of people through whom the power of God, the Holy Spirit, moves and does its work. This is what the church is. So I'm also going to argue that this gets broken at certain times. And I'm going to argue that the platform society in which we live, which we've been sketching out for the last few weeks, is actually something which breaks the chains of conductivity and actually stops the circuit of God's power flowing through people. How does this happen? How do you break the circuit? Well, this story speaks of a moment where the Amalekites have come against the people of God. And we see this story as explained here in Exodus. But the Amalekites are also mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, where it gives us a a bit of a few different details which are illustrative and can help us ask the question of, of how does the circuit get broken? So in verse 17 to 19 of Deuteronomy 25, it says this, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. Now, why are the people coming out of Egypt? They're coming out of Egypt because... They are being freed from oppression and exploitation. But also God is bringing the people out of Egypt because he has a purpose for them. They are to be a people set apart. They are to be a holy people. They are a people who are going to become a dwelling place of the power and the spirit of God. To be formed, to be like an embassy on earth of the way of heaven. Empowered by God. So verse 18 says, the Amalekites, these enemies of of, of the Israelites, these enemies of God, who in a sense are performing the same role. Just at this point, you think they've gotten out of Egypt, the, the, the bad guys are defeated, but then comes along another force reminding us that we don't battle against flesh and blood, as Paul taught us, but actually against powers and principalities. Verse 18 says this, so these Amalekites come when? When you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So this is a manifestation of the anti-creational forces that we saw in Egypt that come against the new creation that God wants to build in the world, but now they're in a different form. It's now a different group of people. And what this group of people is doing, these Amalekites are basically eating away at the relational binds that God wants to create as he's knitting a people together. And this is the same today. The enemy comes to eat away at the relational connections that God wants to build amongst us. And to continue our metaphor, breaks the circuit of God's power moving through his people. How does this happen? Well, We see just before the Amalekites attack, something is happening socially. Before the enemy whose external appears, there's actually an internal enemy that's at play. Exodus 17.1 says this, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Raphidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The first thing that will break the circuit of God moving amongst the people in power is grumbling. 
Grumbling is such a great word in English. It's almost, you can almost see someone like, like it sounds better than like negative feedback or unhelpful criticism. Like there's something grumbling where it almost changes your, your sort of physical way. You, you perhaps move your mouth, you know, like people just like talk about they've got like an anger. They're frustrated and it's coming through them. There's something negative, an attitude just overtaken them and it affects the way you speak. You see, negativity creates ground for the enemy to break the chain. And often this doesn't begin negative, like negativity doesn't often begin negative. There are very few people who are just completely negative and toxic from the beginning. Often where it emerges from is wounds, disappointment, hurt. And it's like whether you fall over as a kid and you, you scrape your knee and, and, and perhaps the first time you ever had someone tend that knee, what you notice they do is they put Savlon or Dettol on it, some antiseptic to actually ensure that that wound does not become infected. So it's not wrong to have a wound, but what the enemy is interested in is infecting that wound. And very quickly, hurt, disappointment, our expectations not being met, can turn into negativity. Negativity often comes from a sense of hopelessness because your hopes have actually been dashed. But this can quickly turn into a critical spirit, which then turns into a sort of toxic grumbling. The people here have been freed, delivered, from oppression and exploitation in Egypt, yet now they're just grumbling against this person who's just literally walked ahead, perhaps afraid, but in faith, and God split the sea, and now they're grumbling against him and God. And so when we have these attitudes, it's like a blockage that stops the power of God moving through us because we're not focused on what the power of God is doing or could do. We're more focused on what is not happening. And in human community, there is endless, endless opportunities in which you can be negative because we're flawed people. To love is to have grace. To love is to forgive. To love is to realize that all of us fall short of the glory of God. So there's ample opportunity to look what people are doing now, what they've done in the past, and allow a negative attitude to develop. And often that was then taken with us through our lives. So the first way to break the circuit is through negativity and grumbling. The second thing is that the scriptures in Deuteronomy 25 note that the Amalekites come when the people are weary and worn out. Weary and worn out. Another thing that will break the circuit, stop God moving through his people is a sense of weariness and worn outness when there's a sense that, oh, I just can't do this anymore. It's just gone on. We've just gone through Egypt. We were in oppression in Egypt. And then plague after plague after plague we sat through. And then Passover. And then we go through the, the you know, Dead Sea splits, the Red Sea splits. It's this sense of this constant facing of things can build a weariness. And so weariness comes. There are periods of tiredness that come in life. Tiredness is very natural. Tiredness is often a message to us that we need to rest. 
but also it can be a reminder that we are doing things in our own power. That there can be a break in the circuitry because actually what it's revealing to us is that we're not acting as a conduit for God's power, that we're actually trying to generate our own power. A power cord does not generate its own power. And so when that weariness comes and we continue to push into it, instead of turning at those moments to God's power and seeing the opportunity, the circuit can get broken because we try and generate our own power. And the enemy knows that our usual defenses, our usual values, our usual ethics, our usual resilience is not always there fully when we're tired. It's like often the food, the fast food ads come on at night, like after dinner, like nine o'clock. If you want to sell like a donut to someone who at 8 a.m. that morning when they got up and went through their daily, I don't know, mantra in the mirror of the healthy person they want to be, you don't give them the donut donut advertisement then. You give it at like 9.30 at night when they're exhausted and tired. It's a weariness when we're relying on our power, or we're tired and don't turn back to God's power, that is a moment when the circuit can be broken. You'll notice also too that the scripture says in Deuteronomy 25, after it says they were weary and worn out, it says really interesting terms. Like when you think of an attack, like an ambush, I don't think of these terms. It says they met you on your journey. Met you on your journey seems quite nice. Met you on your journey doesn't seem like an ambush. It actually seems like you're walking and someone goes, hello, how are you going? You're on this walk too? Do you walk here often? Like if you walk in parks in Australia, like everyone's like, g'day, good morning, hi, how are you going? Yeah, good, hi. Like it's this thing, it's, it's a cultural thing. And so someone saying hello to you and walking beside you doesn't seem confronting. But there's often something that happens is that some of the most destructive entanglements that we can find ourselves in often begin well. As a pastor, I've seen people throw their relationships, their lives, their faith away as they enter into relationships they should have never entered into, which destroys and comes against. This can go from anything from relationships that tear apart to codependency, connection to things that we should not be connected to. Often before the attack comes a meeting and a coming alongside. And often we know if someone comes at you with a big knife and looks scary in a dark alleyway, instantly we go into some sort of response. But we're much more vulnerable when the enemy comes with a friendly face. And when we connect ourselves, often to notice the weariness comes first and then they just come alongside. And often in our weariness, often in our negative attitude, which has got into our head and we're tired and someone comes alongside and we just compromise our ethics just a little bit. The spies come before the soldiers. 
And this breaks the circuit because what it is, is an attempt to connect to another kind of power. It's not the power of God. It's actually at that moment of vulnerability, looking to other sources of power. And then the last little detail that Deuteronomy 25 tells us about the attack of the Amalekites is, it says they attacked not the soldiers at the front, well, Israel didn't have any soldiers, not the, not the strong people at the front, that they actually attacked those who were lagging behind. Now, if you're lagging behind this giant mass of people which are walking out of exploitation and oppression in Egypt, maybe there's a couple of things going on. And I think there'd be a variety of reasons. Some people would be tired and worn out, like we've just talked about. Maybe some are hesitant. Maybe some are not on board with this, like, where are we going? Like, I left. And what is Moses and these people at the front talking about? Like, I'm here. Maybe it's the people, like, glancing back at Egypt because, I mean, what? Was it as bad? I don't see no promised land. I don't know where we're going. We're meeting with God on some mountain somewhere. Like, what on earth had a home back there? And maybe it's the people are going slow because they've got a foot in both camps and they're doing a sort of crab walk behind the people of God. I think what this tells us is that the circuits break often when the line is not maintained. I was in the office a couple of months ago and there was just this helicopter just continually flying and flying over, just like it was going for hours of just hovering. And I got super curious, like, what is this helicopter? I looked outside, I walked outside and it's, I thought it was a police, it's not a police helicopter, it's not the, the ambulance. It was just this like painted black helicopter so I opened the app, flight radar, flight tracker, whatever it is, and I looked at it. I mean, I went deep here because I was getting annoyed. Um, and it did tell me what it was, but it had a flight number. So I wonder if you can, like, put a flight number into Google. Answer is, you can. <laughs> and it was owned by the power company. And I realized that what it was doing, it was flying above all the power lines. And I sort of then Googled another thing and like I learned that the power companies have these helicopters. This only took me five minutes. The power of Google. That actually what it was doing is it looks to see where there's any breaks in the line. It maintains and improves the power lines. And so often we're lagging behind when there's a lack of growth. When we are weary and we then go, oh, I'm operating my own strength, I need to turn to you, we often grow. When we cut off our connectivity to stuff we shouldn't be connected to and we reconnect to God, we grow spiritually. When we realize that we've had a negative attitude and we've let wounds become infected and God heals those wounds and we reconnect to him and God changes our posture and our view of what he's doing in the world, we grow. When we die to self, we grow. But when we're not growing we put ourselves in a vulnerable position. See, growth often requires us to give up something, to sacrifice, to put things on the altar before God. And one of the enemy's chief tricks is to trick you not to grow because you think, ah, oh, it's safer here. I'm just going to be here. I'll let the super spiritual people be at front and the keen beans, you can go forward and I'll just sort of hang back here in this mass of people walking through the wilderness that we call life. But actually, that is the most vulnerable place. The safest place to be is growing in God. So how does God pivot this situation? 
How does God build good circuitry? Before I move on to that, I just want to say all of those things that I just outlined, that we saw in the story of the Amalekites, is built into us by a platform society. Our platform society, through its connective tissue, spreads negativity. We know this. We know that online, toxic emotions go faster. Just look at news.com.au, like the headlines. It's almost comical once you see this. Like, shocking thing, the new bachelor discovered. <laughs> you know, people in uproar. It's all this language, shocking, uproar, angry. It's just, it is something about us and our fallen nature as human beings that we just love bad news. Bad news often travels faster than good news. That if someone did something absolutely terrible, if someone was arrested in a most embarrassing way publicly, that would move faster through our connectivity at Red Church. If there was someone from Red Church, that would go faster through people at Red Church than if someone had a baby. There's something that is incredibly infectious and viral about negative stuff. We're just drawn to it. And so we can fill our minds with negativity, doom scrolling our way through life, doing that digitally, but also in person, because we like to think of what is negative. At a moment like this, when the church has made mistakes and this church has messed up in certain areas, we can also spend so much time on that. We actually miss what God is doing to renew his church. So it does that. Number two, it exhausts people. People in the past who I think of my grandfather who grew up in, lived in Preston, when Preston was super working class, worked a day job and worked a night job because he had to provide for his family at a time when they didn't have much money. He was tired, like tired, doing two jobs, like working two jobs. That's hard, hard work. So there's a kind of burnout that comes from people who are working 80 hours a week, backbreaking work. The people of God in, in Egypt would have been burnt out by exhaustion. But then there's this sense of what Byung-Chul Han calls the burnout society where people are burnt out today because of all the information, all the options, all the constant choice, anxiety, the constant comparison, the constant feeling like you're living up to this standard is that you get absolutely weary. So it's not a burnout or an exhaustion of working really hard. It's actually a burnout that comes from this platform society. And that makes you vulnerable. It makes you vulnerable to then connecting yourself to stuff which you should not be connected to, to relationships, to addictions. And then very quickly, what you find is your spiritual growth is being attacked because you're not growing, because you're just remaining in this, being picked off by the enemy. And can I just say this really, really clearly? The enemy is picking off so many people at the moment. It never begins with a big flash and a bang. It's a process and happens over time. And one of the enemy's great strategies, if he can get you separated, get you disconnected. And this series, we've been talking about how relationally disconnected increasingly people are getting in the world. Enemy can have a field day. When you're in a mass of troops, you're protected. But when you're by yourself wandering, you're easy pickings. So 
What is the opposite of this? How do you build good circuitry? How does God distribute his power through his people? Well, we learn in this story of the battle against the Amakalites. And one thing that we notice is that it actually happens in battle. God builds good circuitry. God actually builds people who his power can move through in battle. And some of you might say, hang on, aren't we over battle? We began with the battle of the people getting out of the exploitation of Egypt. We then went through the spiritual battle of the various plagues. We then went through the battle of the people as they walked through the sea and the Egyptian army was after them. Like seriously, we just left Egypt. More battle? Well, 1 Peter 5 verses 8 to 9 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. This is saying to us that there is a spiritual battle that people experience. I think we've been told by the Platform Society, and there's also something in the water in Australia, perhaps where we are in the world, the very resource-rich society that we have, that there's something where we have this belief that we can create a life where there is no struggle or battle. And then when people experience battle, they feel like there's something wrong with them. What this is saying is when you try and move and grow in God, you're going to experience battle. People not growing are no threat to the enemy. But so often when you move, the enemy will come against you. But the good news is that God builds us in battle as individuals and as a people. You see, tough times are a revealer. They show us perhaps the areas we need to grow in. And you see, God is looking for people who he can trust as carriers of his presence. And who we are in battle and struggle and difficulty reveals a lot. Now, we begin to see more of how God moves through a people in the battle. It begins where it says, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses says to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Joshua is this young warrior who's going to be leading later on. He's going to come and take the leadership after Moses. But this is his first battle. Now, what Moses does says, he says, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, this had worked before. In the last story where the sea was split, this is what Moses had done. He raised the staff, raised his hands, obeying God, and the sea then was split asunder. So it's natural if something has worked and God's done this miracle in that moment that you do that again. So we totally get that. Yet something else is happening in this story. God is teaching the people a new lesson. And so we notice there's another detail. It says in verse 10, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron, and her H-U-R, went to the top of the hill. It's not just Moses. It's not just the staff. There's now just one person. There's three. Aaron and her are there, and they're ready. Now, we know about Aaron. Aaron has come alongside Moses to speak on his behalf because Moses wasn't a great speaker. So we know who he is, but who is her? Well, her is the grandfather of a figure who comes later. The first person 
in the Old Testament who the Holy Spirit comes upon. A craftsman called Bezalel. Bezalel, who had the Holy Spirit placed upon him so that he could craft. craft. It's a French word. He could craft and create a dwelling place for the presence of God. He would literally build pillars. He's a pillar maker. Now before this, two generations before, and so often in Scripture, destiny runs through generations and also happens in us. His grandfather is not building something with materials of stone and wood that Bezalel would do under the power of God. But what her is doing is, at this moment, he is building something out of human relationships. Him just walking up onto that hill at that moment is a building block, and it's the carving and creating of something just the same as later his, his grandson would actually do with tools. When describing how God gives Bezalel, his grandson, he says he's filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and with all kinds of skills. This is also something that her shows. Her at this point realizes that there is a battle going on and he needs to go up on the hill. What to? Why? To be there for Moses. Why? He's not sure probably. But he knows he needs to build there because this is now bigger than just one man. You see, God's strategy in the world is to build the tabernacle. That's coming. But also through this line, and we see this grow all the way to the New Testament, it is also building a people. And in the New Testament, as the temple in, which is the grand sort of grandchild of the tabernacle, as the temple is destroyed by the Romans and never rebuilt, it's actually you and I who are the temple of God, the dwelling place of, the pe- of, of God's presence. So pillars are people who are prepared to be present at the place where God could move. Pillars are people who have a posture of preparedness to be present at the place that God could move. I did not write that earlier, and it's just beautiful, filled with peace. (laughs) Last week, God moved in our service, we had a lot of emails and people just sharing and messages of God did some real things in our service last week. Did you know that we've noticed that when we have 24-hour prayer before a service, that God has often turned up quite powerfully? Like every time we've done that, something's happened in the next Sunday services quite powerfully, corporately, individually. Now, we didn't have one of these this week. We've got our 500 hours of prayer, but that's this sort of longer block of time. But from prayer on Tuesday, last Tuesday, to the Sunday just passed, there were people interceding and praying that actually God would move in people's lives. Did we as a staff team set this up and tell them to do this? No. People came to two services, some people, to pray. Did you know that even there's been people turning up at our prayer meeting from other churches to pray? So yeah, I think it was a good sermon last week. I think there was great worship. 
But I think God moved because actually there were people like, Mo, like Aaron and, and her who turned up prepared, just ready to play their part. Verse 11 continues, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, when he got weary, when he got worn out, when perhaps at that moment he could have thought, oh, why have I put my hands up? These people have literally just wanted to kill me. He literally says at the beginning of chapter 17, they may stone me. Like, like we hear stone and we think of some ancient world thing. It's like they're, they're literally going to murder me. They've got guns and they want to kill me is the modern way of saying this. At this point, there is a total possibility that in exhaustion and tiredness, Moses says, oh, forget this. This is just too hard. I'm not, I'm not doing this again for these people. I've just negotiated with Pharaoh. I've just given up my place in the Egyptian court. And I was sitting pretty while all of you were making bricks. I've given that up. I was like, then I was like hanging in Midian and it was just like completely chilled and I was just rocking around and encountering the presence of God in burning bushes by myself. That was nice, retreating. And then I come back and I'll be like negotiating on behalf of you people to Pharaoh, like endlessly, like multiple plagues. And I'm going to go back again and again for this ridiculous man who just will not give in because he's got a hardened heart. And then I like split to sea and I'm bringing water out of like rocks and you're complaining. Like, I actually think you want to kill me. Well, forget this. I'm out. Back to the retreat near the mountain of God. It's going to hang out with some burning bushes, just do my own personal spiritual thing, and it is going to be a heck of a lot easier. What happens at that moment? Aaron and her took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Biblical scholar Mark Galatza says this, what is most apparent is that Moses is in need of help. He cannot lift up the banner of Yahweh on his own and he cannot be the sole bearer of Yahweh's presence among the people. This will become more apparent in the following chapter when Jethro states, you are not able to do it alone in response to Moses' hearing of all of Israel's disputes. This is why they were present. They were there to be pillars. They were there to be used by God. They did not have a platform. They're not heading up the hill like, oh, this is my moment. I'm going to get on top of the hill. And, and by being close to Moses, people are going to see me and hopefully I'll be in some of the, you know, photobombing some of the, the, the photos of this moment. They're prepared. They're present. And what we see in this moment, this is, we talked about like a, an open circuit where the conductivity is broken. And actually think about it. In this moment, these three men touching each other, holding up the hands, this is actually like a closed circuit. This is now a space where God's power can move, not just through one individual, but through multiple people. You see, God does a miraculous thing when he splits the sea. And he doesn't do it in the same way this time because he's actually teaching the people of God then something. And I think he's teaching to us to us now that humans are the conductive material God moves through. 
The splitting of the sea was about divine power. Like Moses' idea at that point was like, everyone just be still. Let God fight for you. God's like, no, move. Like lift your arms and just head through that sea. Like that's all on God. At this point, he chooses. God doesn't have to. God is sovereign. He doesn't have to. But he's a relational God and he chooses to partner with humans. Now, what's interesting as well is humans exist in time. We are told by our culture that platform society is very event-based. I just read like yesterday, the American economy has almost been saved in the last quarter by three things in a challenging economic time. Number one, Taylor Swift. Like the amount of people who bought tickets, it's insane. And then flown into cities and flights and hotels, like it's this entire economy unto itself. Like something like more people went to it than the NFL, like or something, which is mad. Number two, Oppenheimer. And three, Barbie. Like billions and billions of dollars. Why? Because people want an event. We want to be part of something bigger. We want to be in the concert. We want to be at the big game. We want to be watching the big movie that everyone's going to talk about. Because we want to be part of something. But an event requires nothing of you. Two weeks after the Taylor Swift concert, I've just seen the movie. And humans actually exist in time. We go to events, but we actually live in a process. And the splitting of the Red Sea, it was like an event. It's like this moment, the enemy of the Egyptians are there. There's the sea. Like something's got to happen in that moment. And it's an incredible event. And God does work in events at times. But the danger is our spiritual lives become so event-based. We think that's the only way God's going to work. But actually, this battle goes for hours. And Moses' arms get tired. And what this says is, for God to send his power over not just distance, but time because we live in time that he needs a group of people to do this. One person cannot do it. It was Carlyle had the great man theory that the world is moved just by great men. One singular individual. But actually what this story tells us is that God works through people. And pillars are those kinds of people that he uses. So what makes good conductive material? How do we as humans be not broken circuits, but closed circuits where God can move through us? Well, it's not just an individual thing. As I said, Moses doesn't just nick back off to Midian and just hang out. In the, I mean, nice, desert, like literally presence of God in burning bushes. Relax, no responsibility, retreat, brilliant. No, God calls these people together, this ragtag bunch, sends them in the wilderness to form them into a kind of people. And after this story, we have another story, which the Scarlet quote pointed to, where Jethro, who's the father-in-law of Moses, comes and meets the people. Now, interestingly, they're met by two people in the wilderness. The first one is the Amalekite to attack them. Then Jethro comes, and Jethro offers advice. The Amalekites come as enemies. Jethro comes as a friend, as a fellow worshiper of Yahweh. He says to him, as a father-in-law, which you don't always want to hear from a father-in-law, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who've come, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. 
Listen now to me and I'll give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they're to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God, are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. And appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges of all the people at all times. Let them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your, light loader, your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you're able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. We have a ragtag bunch who is now being built together into a nation and a nation with justice and righteousness and wisdom now filtering down through it. But it's filtered down how? The power of God is now moving amongst these people, changing them, making them more like God. How is, it, how is this happening? It's happening through the conductive material of people who are pillars. But it notes a couple of things. Number one, that they're capable. That they're capable. Capable means you're able to do a task. Now, I just want to say this. There are people in this room, and all of us have been shaped by this, I think, over the last while, where our capabilities to relationally connect to other peoples, our, our relational intelligence and our, just our muscle of talking to other people has declined. And increasingly, people feel senses of awkwardness and social frustration because we don't know how to do this. To build that up, you have to step into some discomfort. To build up muscle, sometimes it's pain. And so we need people who are actually realizing that. At this moment, there is a freight train running in one direction, which is unraveling the social cords and the relational fabric of the developed world. And so to put that back together, we need to be people who are proactive in rebuilding relationships. Community, just because a church puts it on its sign, is not going to make it about community. Just because you desire connection and relationship is not going to magically happen. It's not an event. It's a process. And we have to step into it. And weirdly, many people have not even been equipped, particularly younger generations have not even been equipped how to relate to people well. And it's not your fault. It's literally the, this is what I'm trying to say in this series. We have been exploited and oppressed by a faulty life script. But to walk in the other direction, we need to develop those capabilities. And that's fine. It begins with small steps. It begins with an awkward chat. It begins with a, hi, this is my name. How are you going? Yeah, good. Do you have a chat? Yeah, cool. It also requires people who are trustworthy. God is looking for people who are trustworthy. What does trustworthy mean? Trustworthy is not people who are trying to platform themselves, put their wishes and desires and, and wants forward. I said last week, Australia is an entitled country. We have a lot of blessings and resources that a lot of other countries don't have. But what we do need to do is realize that whatever we've been blessed with, we put on the altar before God, and God is trusting of those who are willing to give their lives and lay down it all before him. That's who he's looking for, people who are trustworthy, who are not pushing their own agendas. If Moses is, there, I mean, if Moses is up there lifting the staff and, and, and her was like, no, I can do it. I want to be the hero here and lifted up the staff in a sort of power grab. He doesn't. He's trustworthy. 
And what it shows is that these men, it says, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, they were more invested in actually putting God first than putting their own agendas first. And this then flows into what verse 22 says, that that sense of let them serve. People are capable, people are trustworthy, people who fear God and then are willing to serve. And these qualities, they don't just magically appear in some people, they're developed. These are developed as God grows us, as we walk forward as disciples. And we need these. These are the highly conductive materials through which God moves, God's power moves. It's what happened back then, and it's what happens now. And I think we need to switch our minds from an event-based idea of church where that was a brilliant church service, that was a brilliant event over there. I had these really mountaintop experiences. Some of them are great. But for the power of God to really move, he is knitting together a people. Some are going to be Moses's. Some are going to be Aaron, some are going to be hers, some are going to be the the people that are spread throughout the human communities, being like the Old Testament judges, offering wisdom and discernment. And when you have that knitted together, going in the opposite direction to what the platform society is directing us to, that's what you have, when you have a people of God through whom his power can move. And this is the challenge for us. So we can lament the age in which there is so much disconnection. We can lament the loneliness everywhere. We can lament the relationships which we thought would be there, which are not. We can lament the people which the enemy has picked off. Or we can go in a separate and different direction where we actually follow God's plan to create pillars. Because you're called to be a pillar. God's plan for you is to be a pillar in the living temple that he's building. And he wants his presence to flow through us. So it becomes a sign and witness to the world. What I love at the end of the battle is that Moses creates an altar and that image of raising the staff is then expressed as raising the banner of the Lord. And let me tell you now, God's raising his banner. When you raise a banner, it's a question of who's going to follow behind that banner. A banner is a symbol that goes at the front of an army. God is doing a new thing, but to follow him, we have to walk differently. So I'm going to pray. Band's going to come up. I'm going to pray into this. Let's stand. I want to pray particularly for broken circuits. And Father, I just want to pray for where negative attitudes and grumbling has broken the circuit of our love for you and love for others and love for your church. God, where wounds have become infected, where disappointments have grown toxic, where perhaps hopes have been dashed and turned into hopelessness, which has then turned into grumbling. God, we actually want to pray, Father, that you will heal our hearts. You will change our attitudes. God, help us to see your possibility. God, for anyone here who feels wearied by the world, wearied by competing against seemingly everyone, for just the endless exhaustion of trying to be something we're not, 
through comparing and competing. God, we, we lay that down. We give up trying to operate in our own power. God, for the connections, the power sources that are not of you, that we've connected ourselves to, the relationships, the addictions. God, I pray you'll break them in Jesus' name. May we reconnect to you, realize that you are the source of everything. You hold the universe together. And Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of the Father. We need nothing but your power poured out on us. We thank you that you gave your life on the cross so that we don't have to strive like this. So we give up striving in your name. And God, I just want to just pray for any person here who's being picked off relationally, spiritually, who the enemy sees is isolated. May your protection fall upon them. Maybe your blood protect them. And God, show them a way to connect into your people. God, I pray against relational and spiritual drifting. And God, I want to pray that you build pillars. God, we pray for the spirit of Moses, but we also pray for the spirit of Aaron and her. We pray for capable people, trustworthy people, people who fear you above the world. And God, we pray for a servant heart. We know that the servant heart is the complete opposite of our platform society, which puts our desires and wants on the throne. And God, we pray for rebuilding a church. We don't care what even the model looks like, what songs are sung. What fonts we use. God, we just pray that you create a church of pillars. We thank you for the pillars who have served so well. And we know many of them are retiring or going to be with you. And we just pray in Jesus' name that you'll build up new generations of pillars, new generations of Aaron's and her. May we be on that hill, ready for whatever you have. <laughs>